Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and thanks so much for listening to the MTF podcast. I first encountered Cory Doctorow very early on in the 2000s. I dived into the world of blogging pretty early, and while I was hardly in the first wave, there still weren't a whole lot of us doing it at the time, so the people who were really good at it and who'd established themselves as people to watch in that space, they came across your radar pretty readily. And so I've been following Cory's work at a distance for the best part of 20 years. I finally had a chance to meet up with him in person when we were both at South by Southwest earlier this year, and so I grabbed him for a chat on the podcast. Corey's a science fiction writer, internet and copyright activist, and co-editor of Boing Boing, a blog that describes itself as a directory of mostly wonderful things. He's an advisor to the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and he co-founded the UK Open Rights Group. His new book is called Radicalized, and it contains four science fiction novellas about the social, economic, and technological dystopia of the very near future of America. This is Cory Doctorow. Cory Doctorow, thanks so much for joining us. Not at all. Um, what brings you here? Uh, I came to do four talks. Uh, so um, two were about Article 13, the, this new copyright directive in Europe, which... Um, I think it's uh, a mistake to think of it as a copyright law. It's really an internet law, and it's a very sweeping one and not a very well-put-together one. Uh, and then I did a panel on science fiction and policy mm -hmm. and how the stories we tell change the uh, policy responses and how we think about how we regulate tech and whether we should and, and, and so on. Uh, then there's a mayor summit here. They, they had about 30 mayors plus CTOs from a bunch of cities across America. Right. And I went and talked about uh, municipal surveillance and municipal IT and uh, network neutrality and municipal networks. Are you an, uh, a tech person who became interested in politics or a political person who became interested in tech? Uh, so I was raised by a political computer scientist. So right. that is like, you know. Okay, well, tell, me, tell me about your parents because that's interesting. No, um my father's a Soviet emigre. His parents were displaced people. They were they were living uh, in a DP camp when he was born in in Asia and in, in Azerbaijan. Yeah. Uh, and um, they were Red Army deserters. And and uh, he became a Trotskyist. And he was a mathematician. And so he is a mathematician. He did a degree in something called applied mathematics, which is we now call computer science. Uh, and so I grew up with um, terminals in the house, and then early. PCs and so I was always into this stuff and you know Marxists are pretty um, science fictional <laughs> so you know there's like this overlap with uh, this kind of technical speculation right this mm. is like I think it's at the core of Marxism I think it's one of the reasons you hear people talking about uh, like non-market allocations and non-market ways of, of of conducting our lives now is that because this this really was where a lot of that speculation came from, you know, there's this famous debate in the 1920s in Austria, the, the socialist calculation debate where like von Mises and von Hayek were the fathers of, you know, market, modern market doctrine that the Austrian school uh, said they proved that you could never do enough computation to allocate things in a big complicated society uh, and that you would need, you need markets to do efficient allocation. And now we have firms and institutions like the Pentagon and Amazon and Walmart that are on the same scale as like the Soviet Union at its peak and right. that internally allocate using computation, not markets, right? So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that's how I got into this stuff. And so... Well, I was going to say, it's really interesting that you put the Pentagon and Amazon in the same breath. Well, if you wanted to... The Pentagon's the world's largest employer. 
Okay. Uh, and I think Walmart is the second, and I think the People's Liberation Army is the third Chinese I army. The Indian train network was up there as well. Yeah, I maybe I don't know. I can't do the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, in the top ten, yeah, there's sure. the they're 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 big and weird, right? And because they're labor intensive projects as well, sure. Um, but anyway, the point being that that like I was raised in a milieu of technology and politics. Uh, I was involved in the anti-nuclear proliferation movement as a young student in, in elementary school and secondary school. Wow. Uh, and Where is uh, this? In Toronto. Okay. And then I, I dropped out of uni to um, be a software developer. And then I started a, a dot-com during the dot-com bubble, and I moved to San Francisco. And then I fell in with uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is the leading civil liberties technology and civil liberties group in the world and uh, quit the startup to go work for them and then moved to Europe to be their European director and lived in London for 13 years. And on the way, sold now about 20-some books, fiction, nonfiction, kids' fiction, um, essay collections, short story collections. On the way, I also got involved with a project that a guy named Mark Fraunfelder had started with his wife, Carla Sinclair Azine, called um, Boing Boing, that we turned into a blog, and it was one of the first blogs, and we still have millions of readers every month, and we have there's about five or six of us who own it and write it every every day uh, and so for nearly 20 years now I've written between 5 and 15 uh, short articles about technology and politics that have crossed my transom trying to both summarize them for third parties so they you know this is what caught my eye about it and also trying to make sense of how they fit in the context of all the other things that had snagged at my attention over the years so now it represents this giant searchable database of things that are kind of raw material for both speculation and political intervention. Because Boing Boing has sort of taken on a different meaning as times progressed. It used to be, certainly, this is where you find out where the interesting stuff is on mm-hmm. the internet. It's a way of discovery. And uh, now it seems very much like, uh, I guess, a, a magazine that's about your identity, that this, this is the kind of thing that I subscribe to. This is, uh, this is how I see myself. Uh, and, and Boing Boing seems to be an external expression of people's identity far more than it is just how they find interesting stuff on the internet. Well, I think it's definitely true that finding interesting stuff on the internet has changed with the growth of social media. Sure. I think mean, that's, that's definitely the case. I still, I think that we've probably become more reflective over the years in terms of um, being less about being what we used to call a link log, you know, like uh, which there's still some really good ones. Uh, you know, the O'Reilly, the, the, the uh, tech publisher, has a thing maintained by another Kiwi, Nat Torkington, called mm-hmm. Four Short Links. Yeah. And it's just literally four links with one sentence. And I love it. I read it every day. Or Naked Capitalism does a daily links roundup. And, you know, um, uh, Dark Roasted Blend does this thing called Link Latte once a month. And so I like the, I, I love those those um, uh, link roundups. But I think we've, one of the things that happens when you watch this stuff go go back and forth for a long time is that you start to have insights or speculation about it and so uh you know that just this morning there was a piece on wired uh written by one of their very good uh writers about off the off the record messaging self-destructing message systems off the back of uh mark zuckerberg announcing that he was going to do an, an ephemeral message product for facebook and she was writing about the limits of this stuff and you know one of the limits is that um if if you send someone a disappearing message but they're not trustworthy they might just take a picture of it before it disappears sure. this happened to Paul Manafort right i mean it's it's it it's like this is this is a problem and i used to be very much on the side that like disappearing messages were stupid 
And I have a friend who started a disappearing message company, a woman named Nick Osell, who also runs the uh, DEF CON kids programming. It's called Roots with a Z. Uh, and, and she started this company called Wicker that does a disappearing message product. And she asked me to join her advisory board. And I was like, people are just going to take pictures of this stuff. Like, what good is this thing? Like, are you going to put DRM on people's phones so that the camera doesn't work? Like, you know, how is this going to work? And she was like, no, 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 you fail to understand. If you and I trust each other, but I don't trust you or me to be perfect in my memory of deleting things after I'm done with them, mm -hmm. we use this tool. And like if we and th what that means is that we flip from the default of everything is preserved indefinitely to only those things that you take an affirmative step to preserve stay. So I use a variety of disappearing message tools now, uh, thankfully, because a lot of them have now built it in. So Signal has a disappearing message protocol and so on. And I screenshot that stuff all the time. That's how I save it, mm -hmm. right? I have folders full of stuff I've copied out of disappearing message protocols, not um, non-consensually, right? Yeah. It's, it's, this is like, it's important, right? This was the information I needed to save. And so, you know. But uh, it's not the default now that it's That's permanent. not the default. Yeah. And, and like, one of the things that I've learned over the years of watching Boing Boing and covering information security and covering breaches and so on is that although you can't use automation to improve trust, you can use automation to improve compliance with things that people want to do. So there's a huge one. Well, actually, I, if like on my tombstone, I hope they write something about adversarial computing because it's this like poorly understood discipline that is like when a system is designed to treat the person who uses it as their enemy, a whole bunch of terrible things happen. Mm -hmm. And th there are non-adversarial compliance systems like... A thing that reminds you to take a pill you want to take is non-adversarial, right? Um, your alarm clock is non-adversarial. Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. Well, I, or a good example here, like Doug Rushkoff gave this, this wrote this article about going to a conference of investors, yeah. and there was a track talking about the end of the world, and they called it the event, and it was about how you would um, continue to incentivize your guards to guard you when money wasn't worth anything, when they could just shoot you and steal your food reserves. And the answer was that they were going to make a combination biometric and password-based food locker. So if your guards didn't keep you alive, they wouldn't be able to open the locker and they'd starve. Right. Right. So this is pretty, in my professional capacity as a dystopian science fiction writer, I can affirm that this is pretty dystopian stuff. But you know what? I've gone on diets where it's like every 17 days you get to eat, you know, some, uh, uh, some sweets. So I could see myself putting a lock on a cupboard that only opens every 17 days full of sweets. Literally the same technology. And the only difference is the locus of control. It's whether the lock is adverse to my interest mm -hmm. or in my interest. And so, you know, there are, this is this, this theme that I actually chase down a lot on Boing Boing. Um, and that this, this accretive or incremental way of, of looking at like developing an idea is very well lent to because all the news flows over your transom and you're like, that's kind of an example of this thing that I've been writing about for a while. You can pull it out. You can look at the links to the other stuff and embed them in it. And then you can um, synthesize it into a larger piece. Right, right. I, with your EFF hat on. Sure. Uh, the connection between copyright, civil liberties, and music tech, which is where we're coming sure. at this from. Uh, where do those things sit together? And why is copyright so important? So I think that copyright's important because of something I think of as the original sin of copyright and the internet um, that I think creators, if they understood better, would be more worried about. Copyright is first and foremost, it's an industrial regulation for the entertainment industry. 
And industries need regulations that provide a framework for uh, keeping all the players uh, aligned, making sure that people aren't ripping each other off, making sure that you know what you can and can't license, what you can and can't do. I'm all for regulation. And there are two ways to think about what a regulation is. One is who you apply it to, and one is what it says. We put a lot of emphasis on what copyright says. How long should it last, and does it? what's fair use, and so on. But we take it for granted that the thing that we've used to decide whether or not a copyright applies to you is conti- continues to be fit for purpose in the 21st century. And that's where I think the problem is, because... Uh, the test to see whether or not you are doing something that should be considered under copyright is, um, are you making or handling works, uh, copies of creative works? And this comes from a time when every record had a pressing plant in its history, and every you know uh, film had a film processing lab, and every book had a printing press. And although it was an imperfect proxy, it was a not terrible proxy. There may have been some people who it over-applied to and may have been some people who escaped around the edges. But 99% of the people who were making or handling copies of creative works were actually in the entertainment industry. The internet works by copying, right? Everything you do on the internet involves making copies. You make 100 copies every time you click your mouse, you know, frame buffers and network buffers and so on. There's actually a proposal, Clinton's copyright czar in 1996, Bruce Lehman, this old Microsoft lawyer, wrote a a paper called the layman paper where he proposed that every one of those separate copies should have a different license and so that there would be like a hundred licenses between a file arriving on your network bus and showing up on your computer this is like an idea only a lawyer could love right so the problem with this is that either we make copyright fit for purpose so you have people for example who use copyright to address being impersonated on tinder because they say oh that's my picture right? So either we actually make it fit for purpose so that, and we stretch it to all the things people use copyright for, regulating their health information, their education, their romance, their personal lives, or so on. Or we carve copyright out of all the things that aren't the entertainment industry, and we only apply it to the entertainment industry, and we make it fit for purpose there. And what we have now is that it's neither fish nor fowl. So I live in Burbank. Um, we have three giant movie studios within walking distance of my house. There's Warner, Disney, and Universal. Uh, and Warner licensed uh, a, a package of rights to Universal to build the Harry Potter theme park, which is also walking distance from my house. Super cool. Used to work for Disney Imagineering. I like theme parks a lot. That is a great theme park. Copyright was clearly a fit vehicle for negotiating the copyright part of that deal. Yeah. I live on a block full of 12-year-olds writing Harry Potter fan fiction. Uh. If we make copyright simple enough for those 12-year-olds to abide by, it will no longer be usable. Like it'll be so simplified that those lawyers won't be able to use it. Or if we continue to keep it so complex Mm. that these lawyers can continue to use it, then all the 12 year olds are criminals and also are being taught that copyright is an incoherent nonsense that they shouldn't pay attention to and should seek to avoid. And so I think that like, Copyright is a great set of tools or or could be a great set of tools for regulating my relations with my publisher. I just don't think it's like a great set of tools for regulating my relations with my audience. And we keep seeing that over and over again, mixtapes and, you know, like this, the um, uh, home taping is killing music and all of these things that are just not fit for purpose. They, they, They give creators the wrong intuition. They put us on the wrong side with their audiences. So that's the artistic side. The civil liberties side is that, when we treat 
personal communications as a fit subject for copyright enforcement, then we put public discourse in the path of copyright enforcement. So in the European Union, they're considering this copyright directive. Maybe by this time this comes out, we'll know whether or not they've passed it. It's being voted March the 25th. And um, the directive has this thing called Article 13. And it moves us from a posture of what's called notice and takedown, which your listeners are probably familiar with. If someone posts your copyright, you write to the platform and say that belongs to me and they have to take it down. And I understand why notice and and takedown isn't... uh, well-favored among rights holders. It's a burden to have to go and take that down. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, if you're a cable operator, you have an affirmative duty to check the copyrights of everything that goes on your cable uh, network. Um, And you have to get this chain of errors and omissions insurance and they do their due diligence and so on. Why should Comcast have to do that for their Comcast channels, but not for their ISP business? Right. But the other side of that, the speech side of this, and speech is one of the foundational civil liberties, is if I walk into a cinema, I can't point at the screen and say that infringes my copyright and expect the projector to take the movie off. Right. I have to go and get a court order. And so this is, there is a bit of give and take in notice and take down. Right. We, we have eliminated the safeguards that make due process for limits on speech. And we have imposed a duty. We've shifted a duty from conduits to rights holders to police speech. Eh, little of this, little of that. Plenty of room for abuse. Right. What Article 13 does is it shifts it so that now platforms have to affirmatively police everything that their users post. So you have hundreds of millions of tweets and Facebook updates and Instagram posts. And um, originally what they said is you have to buy or build filters like the one that YouTube uses, Content ID. And we know that Content ID is full of problems for speech. You know, the king of Thailand uploads a video of the police beating uh, up protesters and says, this is my copyright if anyone tries to upload this, block it, right? And so they, you know, or police do this with police body cam footage. Or you have trolls who do it, who claim copyright before the artist uploads their work. They upload the artist's work and they monetize it. And then they trust in the fact that Google, who are adjudicating millions of copyright claims every day, will take so long to get around to the artist's copyright, especially if it's an indie artist who doesn't have a label who can call a lawyer at Google and has to rely on these frontline processes, that they can just take the money and run. Um, And so that was the original proposal. We pointed out that this would be a terrible idea, both because of speech and because of competition. Mm -hmm. There's five big US companies that can afford to build these filters. It's about $100 million that Google spent on content ID so far, right? If you impose that duty on European platforms, all the European companies disappear. And if we think that Google is greedy and hard to negotiate with when it has to compete with all these small guys around the periphery, give them 10 years with no competition and see where we land, right? So then they took filters out and they said, you don't have to use filters. In fact, if you can avoid it, don't use filters. But what you do have to do is ascertain the copyright status in real time of hundreds of billions of pieces of content uploaded by your users, (laughs) right? Don't have to use a filter. You could maybe figure out how to clone your copyright lawyers and uh, make a billion of them, right? That's another thing you could do. But, you know, honestly, if I tell you, you now have a legal obligation to procure a large African four-legged land mammal with a trunk and a tail and tusks, you're going to procure an elephant, right? Even if I say, like, avoid elephants if at all possible. So now we're going to have a mechanism whereby anyone can lay claim to anything and make it disappear. And then these corporate kangaroo courts will decide whether or not that stuff is reinstated, and it can take months or years. This is an enormous nexus with civil liberties, 
And it's also not going to be great for artists. The the uh, the response you'll get from some people will obviously be, yeah, but blockchain solves everything. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of the fact that 90% of all conversations related to blockchain are non-consensual. I don't see how blockchain solves any of that stuff, right? Blockchain has all those problems and then some because false claims of copyright are now un uneradicable, right? Blockchain allows, allows you to permanently log what people say, but it's back to adversarial and non-adversarial uses. It doesn't help you adjudicate whether they're telling the truth, right? Uh, leaving aside whether or not like the security economics of distributed ledgers and the 51% attack are a thing we should worry about, which is like if one person has 51% of the computation, they can rewrite the ledger, which, you know, we tend to like view that through this very narrow lens of what there's like X dollars worth of stuff in the blockchain and it would cost X plus $1 to own 51% of the computers. So no one rational would do it, but maybe you're the Politburo in China and you want to head off blockchain transactions because you're worried that the future will hold 10 trillion, you know, dollars worth of uh, exfiltrated capital by uh, corrupt officials. And so you blow up the blockchain now for $5 trillion and you've saved $5 trillion, even if that's more than the blockchain is worth at its current value. But leaving aside all the security economics problems, you know, if I falsely lay claim to your copyright, you now have to figure out how to correct this distributed, uneradicable, unalterable ledger. That's That doesn't make life easier for you. You know, at least like if you sue Google to correct the record about who owns your copyrights, a court can order them to do that. A court can't order 51% of the computers calculating the blockchain to correct a record. Sure, sure. I have to ask this. Uh, in technology, society, culture, what are you optimistic about? So I am a science fiction writer, and uh, optimism is a form of prediction, right? Like, do you think the future will be better or worse as pessimism? And the one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that science fiction writers have no business predicting the future, and probably no one does. But we're like Texas marksmen. Like, we fire a shotgun into the side of the barn and then go draw the target around the place where the pellets went in, uh -huh. you know? Um, Science fiction's made a lot of predictions. If if none of them had come true, that would be really remarkable. But our track record underperforms random chance. We're like hedge fund managers. Don't don't believe anything we say. And moreover, as an activist, I think prediction is terrible, right? Because prediction implies that human action doesn't change the future. You know, prediction implies that the future arrives whether or not you you it's take something a that hand happens in it. to you. Yeah. yeah. So I believe in hope. Hope is the idea that if you materially improve your circumstances, that even though you can't plot a course from A to Z now, mm -hmm. that having taken one step up the gradient towards a better future, you may find new terrain revealed that, uh, that allows you to take yet another step higher, right? And, you know, in computer science, we call that hill climbing. It's how we traverse oh. complex terrain, computational terrain. And so I'm hopeful, right? right? So, so my question then is, what are you hopeful about? So... For me, the question is the same as what change could we make today that might let us make more change tomorrow? So I'm hopeful about uh, the burgeoning sense that um, technology questions count beyond the narrow focus of whoever is raising them. Mm -hmm. You know, you have people who are like the most salient thing about the computer is that it's an entertainment medium. Or other people who say, well, it's that it distributes pornography or that it recruits jihadi fighters to fight for ISIS. The reality is that the internet is the, you know, nervous system of our species and it's planetary scale and it wires us together and and when you distort it or when you when you uh, disrupt it that decision redounds through every domain of human endeavor and that gravitas that caution 
is starting to appear in our public debates. It's really, really hopeful. Um, I'm also hopeful of the fact that competition has started to move into our discussion about this stuff. And moreover, the competition debate is not buying big tech's self-serving narrative about big tech. So one of the things that tech really wants you to believe is that it's different. There are things about tech that are different. This universality is different. But, you know, Google wants you to believe that someone came down off a mountain with two, two stone tablets that said, stop rotating your log files and start mining them for actionable intelligence. And that there's like no way we could build a search engine that didn't spy on you. Google made a conscious choice, right? And there are other choices we could make. You know, I'm, I'm reading Shoshana Zuboff's Age of Surveillance Capitalism right now, and she's very, like, uh, casual about monopolies. She says the problem isn't monopolies. It's that big tech has invented a mind control ray that they can use, like, A-B testing and Skinnerian behavior modification to make you do things without you knowing it. They've taken away our free will. And I'm like, I don't know why we would distrust everything in big tech sales literature except for their marketing claims about how effective their technology is like i worked in marketing for a while i know that marketing people are really good at selling to one group of people people who buy marketing right the the actual conversion rate on marketing is really low you know like if we want to know how google shapes our behavior it's by being the only search engine anyone uses and deciding what goes on the front page but that's not mind control you know, that's that's just like, that's a, a very cheap trick if it's a mentalist act. That's like the mentalists who have hidden cameras that watch, you know, what, what people write down on the, car, on the card when they say, you know, think of a word and write it down on the card. You know, it's a bit of technological virtuosity, mm-hmm. but it's not mind reading, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I think that like big tech wants you to think the reason that their sector is concentrated is because first mover advantage and network effects and globalism are what are what count and i think it's that the apple 2 plus came out the year we elected ronald reagan and he promptly dismantled antitrust enforcement right like if it was first mover advantage and network effects we'd all be searching alta vista with our cray supercomputers right like like one of the things that we know about tech is that you can accumulate a technology debt right like if you are married to a certain approach in technology when the technology changes you have this this huge institutional crisis in convincing the people who work in your firm to stop making supercomputers and start making mini computers and stop making mini computers and start making PCs. These are like huge problems that firms wrestle with and being a first mover sucks. And network effects are great, but you live and die by the sword. If your network doubles in value every time someone joins it, then it halves in value every time someone leaves it, which is how MySpace can be on top of the world one day and on the trash heap the next day with Rupert Murdoch sitting on top of it with his thumb up his ass. Is this the safety net for something like Facebook having all this power? Uh, Is is it the fact that there is a fragility built into these things? No, because this is where monopolies matter, right? right? So Facebook lost 17 million uh, uh, 12 to 34-year-olds in 2017, up from 9 million, I think, in 2016. They are hemorrhaging users to Instagram. Right, which they own. Which they own. Right. And do you know one of the things that Reagan got away, done, did away with? The idea that firms can, buy, can grow by buying their competitors, right? If we still had 1980-style uh, antitrust enforcement, Instagram would be a separate company, All right. right? So tech is not different. Antitrust is different. And that's why we have market concentration in tech and we have market concentration in petroleum and energy and shipping and water supply and, and, and. There was an article this morning uh, in the LA Times about Luxatica. 
Lux, Lux Octa or something. They're an Italian company. They own every eyewear brand you've ever heard of and every high street optical store. And they started by buying Sunglasses Hut. And then they took every um, eyewear brand that wouldn't cut wholesale prices to them. And they stopped selling them in Sunglass Hut until the companies lost so much share value that they could buy them. So this is how they acquired Oakley and a whole bunch of other brands. And then they bought Lens Crafters. They did it to Lens Crafters, right? And and now they own Lens Crafters. Then they bought the largest lab in the world. So they own the largest lab. And then they bought the largest um, uh, insurer, eye insurer in the world, uh, optical insurer in the world. Yep. Now they own them too. And the markups relative to before they acquired this vertical and horizontal monopoly are a thousand percent right so like you know uh, this is the exact same thing that's happened with facebook and google right other, other than being a outraged and be overwhelmed by the extent to which this is happening what can we do sure uh, at an individual level that that isn't uh, i mean this, somebody like you who you, you are a crusader you're right. you if i'm not that if i'm right. somebody who sits in a bedroom and makes electronic music but this is important to me and i understand sure. it's important to me what can i do so, at, you know, going from the least engaged to the most engaged, uh, there are a number of nonprofits around the world. I work for one of them, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They don't pay me. I get paid. I'm an MIT Media Lab affiliate, and that uh -huh. pays my work there. So I'm, I don't benefit if you give them money, but I really believe in them, and I'm a donor to them. Um, and when I started working for EFF 15 years ago, more than 15 years ago, we were almost the only one. There are three or four different groups like this. Today, there's dozens of them because... Uh, this issue has grown in salience, right? Technology touches us in so many ways. So if EFF's not your cup of tea, there's the Free Software Foundation and FSF Europe. There's also Creative Commons. There's Public Knowledge. There's the Internet Archive. Um, there are, uh, you know, so many nonprofits that do this work. There's the PERGS. There's Consumers Union. There's WITCH in the UK. There's BIUK in the Netherlands, uh, or across Europe, rather, all these different groups, Nets Politique in Germany, Quadrature de Net in France, um, Digital Rights Ireland, and so on and so on. You can just write them a check, right? Or, you know, send them a, send them some money. Or you can just join the mailing list, which again, like who reads mailing lists? But what you can pay attention to is not the, here's what's new in digital rights this week, but the like the blast that you get that says, hey, person who we know is in this congressperson's constituency or this country, your voice right now matters because someone who depends on you for their vote really needs to hear from you, right? So that's that's like super low engagement, right? Write a check, send the occasional email, make a phone call to your member of parliament or whatever, do it twice a year, you've done something, right? At a higher gradient, um, have a conversation about this stuff with two techie people you know, right? We have this, there's this like stupid thing that people say where it's like, well, my mom will never understand this, which is like, horrible about women in computing and moms, right? Because for one thing, like moms are the people that no one designs technology for. And so every mom who's using technology has overcome that baseline hurdle that they've had to figure out how to repurpose something that never figured out how they were going to use it and make it work. So they're all friggin' ninjas, right? Yeah. It's like a technology so easy your boss can use it maybe, you know, but like there's so much low hanging fruit. There's so many people who are really technical and who have their head down, and as you say, they're making EDM in their bedroom. They are the people who are primed to understand this stuff. Have this conversation with them. Get them thinking about it. Ask them to join their mailing list. Do it 
to two people and then go back to them a week later and ask them if they've given it any thought. And if they say, yeah, this really matters to me, ask them to go have this conversation with two people. This is a normative change we're going to make in the world. At the most intense end of, of uh, engagement, we at Electronic Frontiers Foundation, Frontier Foundation has started this thing called the Electronic Frontiers Alliance. And it's a network. They're not of chapters, affinity groups. Um, Crypto Party is one of them. There's a whole ton of different affinity groups all around the world that are working on this stuff. If you Google Electronic Frontiers Alliance, you can find out whether you have one already in your town or you can start one. And people are working on these very local issues that are related to it. A lot of street-level surveillance stuff right now on this, on this, where you have people in small towns and big cities where their cops are buying automatic license plate recognition cameras, facial recognition systems, uh, stingrays, and, and other forms of cell site simulators that track your location based on your phone and intercept your messages and log metadata. And they're getting involved through local affinity groups, showing up at town meetings and just kicking ass, mm. right? So that's the maximum level. Minimum level, join the mailing list, write a check. Medium level, talk to some friends. Maximum level, start a group. I know you're on a short timeline, but uh, one of us has gotten to get in trouble from your uh, publisher if we don't sure. ask this question. Tell me about your new book. Yeah, I have a book out called Radicalized. It's four novellas about our relationship to technology and privilege and individual action and group action. You know, one is about uh, the Internet of Things and the exploitation of refugees. One is about, like, entitled wealthy people, you know, middle-class people who watch their loved ones die of preventable illnesses that their insurers won't cover. And when they turn to internet message boards for solace, they get radicalized and become suicide bombers who kill healthcare executives. You know, one's a superhero story about the the fatal beating of Eric Garner by the New York Police Department. Um, and, and it's about Superman and the NSA. Uh, and um, one is about preppers who end up shitting themselves to death in their bunker while the actual heroes of the apocalypse, who they fancied themselves to be, are back in the city getting the sanitation system working again. Some of it's being turned into audiovisual stuff already. There's a movie deal for for the IoT story. Uh, the audiobooks are great. Will Wheaton reads one of them. He's one of my best readers. He's read a whole ton of my fiction for mm-hmm. audio. So, yeah. Congratulations. Radicalized. Thank you. Corey Doctor, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Author, activist, and blogger, Corey Doctorow. And that's the MTF podcast. Like Corey said, one thing you can do is tell two people. And while you're doing that, maybe you could mention this podcast to them as well. Have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.